Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined today as so very often by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. This week, we're going to kick off by obviously talking about the market. There was a nasty uh, downward leg on Friday last week, which we didn't really have time to discuss last week because we were recording exceptionally on the Thursday. So perhaps we should pick off uh, at the beginning by talking about the market, Simon. There was that nasty drop last week on fears of the new variant. Um, but how has the market taken things in its stride this week? Well, the numbers for this week, certainly the first four trading days of the week, investment companies are actually in negative territory over that four-day period, so down about 0.4%. But the wider UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share is actually in positive territory, up 1.1%. But you're spot on in terms of what happened last week. I mean, that sell-off in the market on the back of the news of the Omicron variant was quite pronounced. So the, the FTSE All Share was down 3.5% on Friday of last week. And that was the worst market sell-off that we've seen this calendar year. And investment companies were also down, unsurprisingly, but about 2.2%. So certainly markets have been skittish this week. And in terms of where we stand now year to date, the investment company sector is up about 11, 11.1% or so. And that's behind the wider UK market. The FTSE All Share up about 14.2%. And both lag the FTSE All World. So how global equities in general are doing, they're near about 18% up. So it has been a little bit of a choppy period. Clearly, all eyes on the Omicron variant. Uh, that was first identified in South Africa, clearly, and lots of questions, very few answers at the moment. What does it mean? Will the vaccines be effective? How will the treatments pan out? And there's also clearly bad news coming out of Europe as well. So in terms of what's happening in Germany, that have announced another lockdown this week. And again, what does this mean for the global economic recovery? Lots of queries in terms of supply chains and general consumption levels. I mean, it's all too early to say, frankly, but what it uh, doesn't feel like is a gentle run into the end of the calendar year. No, indeed, it does not. Uh, this week, I mean, it has been very interesting. If, you, if you're following the market on a day-by-day basis, it's been up one day, down the next. And that's reflecting the fact, as you say, that really there isn't enough information really to decide how serious this new variant is and or whether the vaccine is going to be effective. We've had two bosses of drug companies coming out and one saying they thought the vaccines would be affected, the other one saying they weren't so sure. And that kind of reflects the wider uncertainty around this. But the market movements generally have been consistent with the idea that it does imply some kind of further slowdown, or more of a slowdown than was expected earlier. I mean, the energy prices have come down, oil prices come down a bit, bond yields have fallen back a bit, and uh, the market's been hit as well, as you say. So not been the perfect week for investors. But then, as you pointed out, we've had a very, very good year so far. Apart from September, early October, we had an almost uninterrupted rise in the equity market. So that's pretty unusual to get through a whole year without a, a serious correction. And let's see if we can make it to the end of the year without uh, further anxiety. So let's kick off then by talking about um, corporate activity in the investment trust world. That goes on regardless of the uh, pandemic or the virus or any variants thereof. Let's kick off with Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus, ticker AAS. So Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus announced a number of proposed changes this week, and that followed a comprehensive review of its long-term strategy. 
basically the investment policy is going to be amended to allow more flexibility. So at the moment, investment is limited to those companies with a market cap of 1.5 billion or less. So this is very much focused on Asian smaller companies. However, what the managers, the investment management team are saying, actually, that's too much of a limit because of the way the market has developed particularly in China and India. And by increasing that investment limit, it will allow them to invest in more growth opportunities. In addition to that, Flavia Chong, Aberdeen's head of equities for Asia Pacific, will be appointed as joint lead manager alongside Hugh Young and Gabriel Sachs. They're looking to increase the target dividend by 100% as well to 32p, which gives them a yield or a target yield of 2.2%. They're also going to make changes to the management fees. They're going to put a tiered fee structure in place. They're also looking to do a share split on a five-for-one basis and also introducing a conditional tender offer for up to 25% of the share capital. And that will be triggered if the NAV underperforms the MSCI or Country Asia X Japan small cap index over a five-year period from the 1st of August 2021. All these changes are subject to shareholder approval at a general meeting on the 27th of January. But it's an interesting set of proposals and it follows on the heels of what we've seen for Dragon Trust, which is also in the Aberdeen stable. And also just the last week or two, I think we talked about Scottish Oriental smaller companies that are also looking to do a conditional tender offer. So I think there is this idea that there is an attempt for a number of these funds to, to address their discount levels, to make themselves more appealing to retail investors in particular, so broaden that shareholder base and really kind of get on the front foot in terms of telling their story. So I do see this as a, a bit of a reboot for Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus. I had a look at this one. I didn't actually realise it's, it's quite a substantial trust, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, well over 500 million. So it's perhaps less than usual to see funds of that size uh, having a, a kind of reboot of this nature. Uh, but I guess it has to be seen in the context of the wider changes in the market and, and indeed the whole revamp of the Aberdeen stable. So how has this trust actually performed over the last uh, few years? Is it actually uh, been performing poorly or is it just the discount that's been the major concern? In NAV terms, it's got a decent uh, track record, actually. So if you look at it over five years, NAV total return, it's up about 64%. That's broadly in line with the new index that it's looking to benchmark itself against. But it's also ahead of Fidelity Asian Values and Scottish Oriental smaller companies in the same peer group. So Scottish Oriental smaller companies up 36%. Fidelity Asian values up 52%, all on a five-year NAV total return basis. However, Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus has traded out on a discount that's averaged about 11% over the last 12 months or so. So I think that's really the, the issue here. Well, we'll follow that one with interest, as always. Like all these uh, changes in strategy, it's easy to uh, report them, less easy to keep track of whether that's made a significant difference over time. But I think shareholders obviously will have reason to be pleased with that one, with that notion that the board is doing uh, what it should be doing here to improve the returns. Let's move on and talk about Amadeo Air 4 Plus, ticker AA4. This is one of these specialist aircraft leasing trusts that have had a really torrid time uh, in recent times. Uh, What have they had to say? It seems to be some positive news from Amadeo Air 4 Plus, actually. So they announced this week that Basically, in September last year, they returned to shareholders a large portion of the proceeds from the sale of two aircraft, but they retained £30 million at that stage to provide what they describe financial flexibility in a challenging and uncertain environment. They've now got to the point where they've decided that they are prepared to return that £30 million to shareholders, and that will be done via a compulsory redemption process, and that will be on the 8th of December. 
So the redemption price is equivalent to 34 spot 55p, so that's north of their current share price. Also, they're looking to reinstate their regular dividend as well, and that will occur from the first quarter of next year. They haven't announced how much the dividend will be yet. But in terms of the actual portfolio, so I think at the end of May, certainly there were there were 12 planes in the portfolio, at least out to the Emirates and Thai Airways. And in terms of Thai Airways, they are now proceeding satisfactorily, apparently, in terms of uh, what's going on with those aircrafts, and they're going to provide a further update. But this news was taken positively by the marketplace. I mean, just to put some numbers around this, this particular investment company, I think it was it had a share price of about 80p going back to February 2020. That had fallen down to 23p by July this year. Uh, and we've seen it just pop up a little bit on the back of this news. So it's near to about 27, 28p now. But this particular trust, I guess, is one of the larger ones in this aircraft leasing uh, sector, subsector, I suppose you would call it. But it's not going out of business. It's not like they're going to give up. They're going to uh, return all the money to shareholders or anything like that. So what's the strategic objective here? Well, I mean, there's still quite a lot of work to be done, I think. Um, I mean, obviously, the negotiations with Thai Airways are ongoing, but they're obviously signaling that there's some news to come on that front. Uh, I mean, if you actually look at the underlying portfolio, as I mentioned, the 12 planes of the were at the end of May, and in terms of the lease expiries, they run from 2026 to 2030. So you know these things should be around for some time. Um, and as I said, the two kind of counterparts are the Emirates and Thai Airways. But I think the resumption of the dividend payments, I think, will be a key moment for this investment company. I mean, clearly, aircraft leasing has been a, a pretty tough place to be or to be invested, certainly over the last 18 months, two years, for very, very obvious reasons. But I'm, I suspect the hope here is that they've turned the corner. Yes, it's been an unhappy experience for these uh, particular trusts, which uh, they made quite a splash when they started, but it's turned out to be a bit of a, an issue for shareholders how uh, badly they've performed. Let's move on and talk about Gresham House Strategic, ticker GHS. We've had cause to mention them again recently. This is another one of these shareholder board disagreements, or a slightly more complicated than that in this case, I think. Tell us what the latest in this particular saga is. We've had two developments this week on Gresham House Strategic. I mean, initially, we saw the proposals for the managed wind down, uh, and that requires a change of investment policy that will allow realisation over a 24-month period. There will be an initial return of capital of £25 million, and that will be partly through a B-share scheme uh, worth just over £10 million, uh, with the balance being done for a tender offer. Uh, and to make this all possible, a general meeting will be held on the 15th of December. So Harvard Capital has committed to manage the portfolio for no fees during the, the 24-month managed wind-down period. And Richard Staveley, who was the, the fund's previous manager, is expected to act as a consultant to Harwood, and Christopher Mills will act as the lead manager. Now, subject to all these proposals being approved, uh, the fund's name will change to Rockwood Realisation. So that was the initial development this week. And then uh, a day or two following that, we had the former chairman of the fund, a gentleman called David Potter, publish an open letter to shareholders and which he really set out his case. To paraphrase, he basically claimed that Gresham House, so the previous investment manager, is controlling this fund from a minority position and evidenced that by saying that two of the three directors of the fund had been nominated by the firm alongside the one remaining independent director. He also argued that a forced sale over two years 
uh, of a portfolio of relatively illiquid shares would impact shareholder value. And in fact, his proposal was that shareholders should be offered a rollover option, or ideally, Gresham House Strategic should continue in existence with arrangements made for institutions who wish to act. So an interesting development in this one. Yeah, somewhat unusual, I think. But yet again, we've got at this time a former chairman speaking out, if you like, in public. I requires a rallying call, I expect. So the situation here, as I recall, is that Gresham House, which is still the manager of this trust, basically wants to wind it down. They're the ones who want to wind it down, right? Because otherwise it was going to go transferred out of their control to Harwood Capital. Is, is that roughly right, as I recall that correctly? Yeah, I might be wrong, but my understanding is it has actually moved to Harwood. So Gresham House are no longer the investment manager. However, they have a big stake in the investment company and they got a number of the other shareholders as well to sign irrevocable uh, agreements that they would support their proposals to basically push for a managed wind down over a two year period. Okay, so it's slightly complicated. We have to wait and see how this one plays out, of course. How do you think it will play out? Have you got any thoughts, any fingers in the air about how this one will actually all end up? Well, I think it's a bit of a mess. I think most people could probably agree with that, regardless of which particular side of the divide that you find yourself on. Um, I mean, what I think it is worth noting that the fund is trading on a 13% discount or so at the moment. That compares with an average of 9% over the previous 12 months. In other words, it has been derated. And as the former chairman points out, this is a, a largely illiquid portfolio. There's some quite significant stakes in some small cap companies, and it will take time to dispose of those, particularly if the market is aware that there is a time limit, uh, in other words, you are a false seller over a period of time. So I think the market's kind of pricing that in to an extent in terms of the 13% discount, but we shall have to see how this one proceeds. I personally wouldn't be surprised if there are more developments to come, though, in this particular saga. Indeed, I wouldn't be surprised by that either. But I guess there's another example here of, if you like, the potential conflict behind this idea of skin in the game. You've got skin in the game if the managers have a significant stake in the trust that they're managing. But if they have too large a stake, which I think, again, in this case, Gresham House has quite a significant stake, it can actually make life difficult to resolve issues when they reach this kind of state. Is that a fair comment? I think a lot of people would agree with that comment. And actually, it probably brings us on very nicely to uh, our next uh, our next subject, third point investors. Well, let's go on to that one then. Third point investors, ticker TPOU, which is uh, must be uh, ranking as a candidate to be one of the trusts that we've mentioned more often than any other this year, with the possible exception of uh, music royalties, I suppose. Uh, but let's <laughs> talk about this one. What's happening? Some of the shareholders are trying to uh, remove one of the directors from the board. And uh, I guess the question is, did they succeed? And the answer is no, they didn't. So at uh, the EGM this week, shareholders approved both the exchange facility and rejected uh, the resolution to remove Joshua Targoff as a director. And Joshua Targoff, he's not an independent director. He's he's tied in with the investment manager. So the board said that they hope that uh, following the result of the vote, AVI, who are one of the agitating shareholders, uh, would now cease its, quote, self-serving agenda. In response, AVI, Metage Capital and Global Value Fund, who are uh, three of the four shareholders that uh, were agitating for this vote, they issued a statement in response highlighting their calculation that the resolution to remove Joshua Targoff as a director would have been passed with 75% in favour had it not been for the votes from Daniel Loeb, the CEO of Third Point, and VoteCo, which is the uh, entity that we discussed before that was set up when this particular fund was launched. So, yes, I mean, again, what can you say about this? I mean, if you look at AVI's numbers, as they say, they're 75% in favour. In terms of the public shareholders, 52% of public shareholders voted uh, for the removal of 
Joshua Targoff and uh, you know, AVI pointed out that VoteCo is technically not permitted to vote in the annual re-election of connected directors. Now, clearly, this wasn't an annual re-election. This was an EGM. So maybe that's the technicality that allowed this. But where are we now? Well, AVI are calling for private discussions with the board in order to take this one forward. But there's certainly, one suspects, quite a lot of bad feeling on both sides. Yeah, definitely one in which the lawyers are, I'm sure, enjoying, at least if no one else is. Uh, it seems a bit rich to talk about accusing AVI of having a self-serving agenda, since, I mean, most shareholders have a self-serving agenda, don't they? That's why they have votes in order to vote for what they think is the best outcome. And they might dress it up as being, well, it's in the interest of all shareholders, but actually, uh, ultimately, they're probably voting for what's best for them, as I'm sure Dan Loeb was doing when he voted his shares in uh, against this particular resolution. Yeah, it is a mess, isn't it? But I guess um, AVI and their colleagues, I mean, they've gone into this business willingly. They are shareholders who are, who are activist shareholders themselves. So they're trying to shake things up. And I guess this is all about tactics and, and we'll have to see what the end game is. But for the moment, the board and uh, Mr Loeb seem to be uh, still winning this one on points. And has the discount come in any further as a result of all these various ramifications? Not really, I think, is the answer. I mean, I've got it on about a 14% discount or so. That compares with an average of 15% over the previous 12 months. So, I mean, it has been as narrow as a 9% discount, but it, you, you couldn't call it a, a significant re-rating. Okay, well, the one thing we can be sure about is this one will run and run, knowing the personalities and the parties involved. Let's move on and talk about fundraising. Fundraising is still going on. The market has obviously wobbled a little bit since uh, last week, as we said, but... Uh, that hasn't completely uh, stemmed the flow of fundraising. There were a number of issues uh, out there which were waiting to be resolved, and uh, let's run through them. So let's kick off with One Trust, which is trying to raise some more money in this current market, which you can see how it gets on, and that is Chrysalis Investments, ticker C-H-R-Y, which is this interesting vehicle that uh, is involved in relatively late-stage private companies. What have they said they're going to be doing? Well, they've come out and announced a proposed placing up to £300 million. That's at an issue price of 238, 238p, and that represents a premium just under 2% to a pro forma NAV at the end of November. An open offer will also be made through the primary bid platform. The idea is that new funds will be used for both follow-on and new investments. So at the moment, the portfolio consists of about 17 holdings, and they've always made it quite clear that the target number is between 15 and 20 so the idea is that of the capital raise, 125 million will provide funding required for likely follow-ons expected uh, in the early part of next year. And then in addition to that, the investment team estimate that up to about 175 million of fresh capital could also be invested. So the placing closes on the 10th of December. And assuming that that's successful, the new shares will start trading on the 13th of December. But this is an interesting development. I mean, Chrysalis, we've talked about this uh, investment company a number of times. It has been a success. It's grown to a market cap of probably not too far off 1.3 billion. They raised 300 million back in March this year at a price of 205p. However, we have seen Chrysalis derated a little bit just in the last week or two. And I, I notice now that certainly the price on my screen at the moment is 233p. So in other words, about 5p lower than that proposed placing price. Right. I mean, this is an interesting issue for anybody who's interested in fundraising and whether or not to take part. This fundraising this year, as we said, has taken place against the backcloth of an equity market has been rising steadily throughout the year with only one serious interruption. So even if you've got a good issue, you have to take account of the market conditions as well at the time you're doing your issue, do you not? 
But how big a factor is sort of short-term sentiment in whether or not these things go well or not? Yeah, I think it can be a very significant factor, to be perfectly honest. So, I mean, historically, trying to launch a fund or raise additional capital uh, when your share price is below the placing price in the case of uh, you know secondary issue makes it incredibly difficult, frankly, because clearly people are going to look at the screen price and say, well, why am I going to pay a premium to that? So it does become a headwind. But look, the market is quite choppy, as we've discussed earlier. It is playing around a little bit at the moment. And certainly Chrysalis, until very recently, has traded on a, on a premium rating. So I mean, just to put some numbers around that, I've, I've had it trading on an average premium over the previous 12 months of about 7%. But as I say, it has flipped to a, a bit of a discount at the moment, probably about 6 or 7% discount. Right. So that, I think, will be quite an interesting bellwether of whether this particular, which has been very successful, this trust, as you say, since its launch in uh, 2018, uh, now part of Jupiter, of course, used to be uh, at Merion, but they got bought by Jupiter. Interesting to see how that one goes uh, when that one closes on the 10th of December. Let's move on and talk about uh, Octopus Renewables Infrastructure, ticker O-R-I-T, which has been looking to raise some money. And how did they get on and compared to what they were trying to do? Yeah, they raised what they wanted to raise, actually. So they raised £74 million. That was an oversubscribed issue. And that included £69 million via placing and just short of £5 million through the retail offer. So 70 million new shares were issued at a price of 105 spot 5p. And they begin trading on Tuesday of next week. So when they last raised money, it was July this year, and they raised £150 million at that stage. That was also oversubscribed. And they're talking about a pipeline of assets worth £423 million. Apparently, they're under option, and uh, that means they're even in advance or uh, bilateral negotiations. So perhaps the question is, why did they not raise more money? And I think the answer is that that's £70 million shares. That was apparently the limit that they had authority for without preemption rights. So that was technically the most they could raise at this stage. Which sort of implies that they still might come back for a bit more in due course. Is that likely, do you think? I mean, if they've got capacity and they haven't got necessarily quite as much equity as they like, is that possible? Well, I mean, if they can demonstrate that there is a pipeline of assets there and they can deploy the capital and they are incremental to returns, then they've got a strong case. And what is the latest NAV there? I mean, you said they've issued shares 105p. They were launched at 100p and started trading at... 98 or something. What's the latest NAV that they've published? So that 105 spot 5p, that represented a, a, about a 6, 6.5% premium to their NAV at the end of September. So according to my screen, I've got them at about 98p NAV. Right. So in terms of NAV, they haven't actually progressed that much so far in terms of underlying NAV. But these are projects that take time to deliver, of course. Okay, let's talk about uh, a rougher investment company, ticker RICA, which is a much more long-standing investment trust, a very interesting multi-asset, relatively defensive investment trust, trading in the flexible investment sector. They were looking to raise a little bit of money. How did that go? For the same sort of reason, they'd run out of capacity, I think, or the amount they could raise with shareholder approval. Yeah, that's right. So they announced that they'd raised £41 million through the issue of 13.8 million shares, uh, of which 10.6 million were through an open offer. So if you remember, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, it was on a kind of one for four basis. And in addition to that, there were 3.2 million issued through an offer for subscription intermediaries offer. Um, So that was subject to shareholder approval uh, at a general meeting on Friday at the end of the week, with the idea that the new shares begin trading on Monday, the 6th of December. So it's interesting because we talked about the fact that they specified the issue price of 296 spot 5p, which is quite unusual for an investment trust. Invariably, they'll say they'll issue shares at a 
premium of whatever it is to the the kind of prevalent NAV. In this case, they were quite clear what the issue price would be. When they made that announcement back in mid-November, I think that represented about a 1% premium to the NAV. But actually, the, the NAV has kind of crept down a little bit, just given the market turbulence. So that ended up being a 3.3% premium to the NAV. Now, they could have, in theory, raised up to £167 million. There were 56.2 million shares available through the issue. Uh, so there's been some commentary that this will be a disappointment. But I think you were spot on in terms of your comment that this was driven by the fact that they had to uh, issue uh, a prospectus and a seek shareholder approval. So it kind of made sense to raise a lump of capital at this stage. I mean, so far this year, including this particular issue, they've raised over £170 million. Yeah, which is not bad going at all. Let's move on and talk about Urban Logistics. REIT, ticker SHED, S-H-E-D. They had an offer out there, we know. And uh, how did that go? So Urban Logistics REIT announced that they'd raised gross proceeds of £250 million. And actually, the size of the issue was increased. Initially, they were looking for £200 million, uh, but moved it up to £250 million. But even given that, investor demand was still significantly... It had to be scaled back. It exceeded the maximum size. So uh, 147 million shares were issued at a price of 170p. And in fact, what will happen is that those shares will begin trading on Tuesday of next week. But actually, the whole company is moving across from AIM to the main market. And I think, again, we talked about that a month or two ago. But uh, certainly, it's a very successful uh, issuance for Urban Logistics REIT. The last time they came to the market, I think they raised $108 and that was oversubscribed. But this is obviously another leg up. Yes, and uh, just remind me what kind of yield they're offering at that uh, particular price. It's obviously a very popular sector at the moment. Very popular because of all the online activity that's been going on. So what kind of yield does that represent? If you took part in this particular placing at 170p, what kind of yield are we looking at? I've got them on my screen about four, 4.4%, somewhere in that ballpark. And they're sort of direct competitors, I guess, are uh, Tritax Big Box, the sort of market leader, and Warehouse REIT. How do they compare on the yield front? They're a little bit higher, actually. Um, I mean, what we have seen is quite a bit of yield compression because this has been a very popular area of the marketplace. The, these funds have all done very well. So Tritax Big Box, I've got them on a historic yield of about 2.7% at the moment. Warehouse REIT, a little bit higher than that, 3.7, but Urban Logistics at 4.4 is certainly the highest of those three. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about another placing, which is VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, ticker GSEO. How did their issue go? So they raised £70 million, uh, and that was via a placing of just short of £69 million new ordinary shares at a price of 101 spot 5p. Basically, they've got a pipeline, I think they've valued at about £258 million, uh, various assets, onshore wind farms in Mexico, hydro projects in Brazil, solar site in Vietnam, uh, and also got a carbon capture project in the UK. So I think that kind of moves this story on. This company, actually, VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, only came to the market in February this year. Uh, they raised £243 million at that stage. And by the end of September, they were 92% committed. So this is another one where the NAV, at least the published NAV, is still below the issue price. It's below the 100p, at which they would notionally have started. So there's, again, there's quite a lot of being taken on promise here, given that this is a relative newcomer, is there not? Yeah, I mean, it's all about getting your capital to work at this stage. I mean, this particular investment company is targeting it at 10% per annum. 
total return. They've got a 5p dividend target for 2022, but it's really about uh, getting your money to work at this stage. And by getting this additional 70 million, clearly they have this pipeline lined up for those proceeds. Uh, but it's really about building out the portfolio at this stage. We talked about fundraising before and how there's a bit of a rush towards the end of the year to get everything in before the year is closed off. Do you think we're getting to the end of that period now? I mean, we've gone into December, only got a few weeks before Christmas. Are we going to see sort of this fundraising drying up, regardless of what the market's doing, of course? It's an interesting comment. I mean, there's there's still a few potential IPOs out there, to be honest. I mean, it has been a very, very busy year with regard to fundraising, as we've discussed on pretty much every podcast uh, we've done this year. But uh, there's still a few more to go. Will they be successful? I mean, going back to our earlier comments, I mean, it does become a lot more difficult when market conditions uh, become volatile. Obviously, uh, you know, big question mark over the direction of travel in the short to medium term. I mean, a lot of the asset classes that uh, are being marketed at the moment or in terms of the investment vehicles uh, are non-equity asset classes. So uh, in theory, at least, market direction shouldn't have too much of an impact. But I think the reality is, or history would suggest, it just becomes a lot more difficult when the markets are a bit choppy. So it'd be interesting to see if we get any more across the line before the end of the year. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some results now. We're going to kick off in the UK, and we're going to kick off, first of all, with a uh, investment trust that, because we recorded on Thursday last week, we didn't manage to mention, and that is Bailey Gifford UK Growth, which uh, reported on Friday last week. Tell us how they're doing. Again, this is a... Uh, a relatively recent addition to the Bailey Gifford stable. So these were interim results for the six months to the end of October. In that time, uh, they generated an NAV total return of 2.8%. That represented a slight underperformance against the FTSE All Share, which was up 5.4%. Uh, in share price terms, not as good, actually. So the share price total return was actually down. It was negative 5.6%. And that was a reflection of the fact it moved from a, a 3% premium to a, about 5 6% discount. So the holdings that didn't perform so well for them in the period, that included Boohoo.com, Renishaw and Lancashire Holdings, uh, as well as not owning the major oil stocks. However, they did have a number of positives. Ultra Electronics at James's Place and Volution all worked well for them. Uh, and they also made a number of new investments as well, including Oxford and Nanopore Technologies and Wise. So uh, quite a period of performance, I think I could say generously, for the Bailey Gifford UK but um, it's been over three years since Ian McCombie and Milena Maliva took responsibility. It was at the end of June 2018 that they've been involved in that particular uh, investment trust. So at least they've come out to their kind of third anniversary, which is a point when often uh, investors start to look more uh, intently at our manager's performance over the period they've been in charge. So that's uh, an interesting one. I've actually done a uh, Q&A with Bailey Gifford UK Growth, Ian McCombie for the Investment Trust Handbook. And for the record, Simon, what has been the uh, the performance of this trust over that three-year period, which, uh, which I've just mentioned? Well, over the last three years, the NAV total return for Bailey Gifford UK growth, they're up 37%, and that's compared with a, a rise of 17% for the FTSE All Share. So they've certainly outperformed over that period, and they'd be um, one of the strongest performing investment trusts in the UK all companies subsector. Okay, so that uh, change of management there has probably been a success. We don't obviously know what the previous manager would have done if they'd uh, carried on, but uh, I think it's fairly safe to say that that so far has been a successful transition. Let's move on and talk about BMO UK High Income, ticker BHI. What uh, have they had to report for the six months to the 30th of September? Yeah, in that time, they generated an NEV total return of 4.4%. That compared with a rise of 8% for their benchmark 
so the FTSE All Share, and the ordinary share price total return was up 10.2%. Uh, and it's worth saying, actually, BMO UK High Income has two share classes, so an ordinary share class, B share class. So the ordinary share class was up 10.2% as the discount narrowed to 3%. The B share price was up on a total return basis 16.4%. Uh, as the rating moved to a premium, a 3% premium. So just to remind people, the two share classes, the ordinary shares uh, are paid a dividend. The B shares receive a capital repayment equal to that dividend. So it's a slightly unusual structure. But um, it's an interesting portfolio. So Philip Webster is responsible for this one. It's very concentrated, 35 holdings. Uh, I mean, in this particular period, uh, stock selection was negative. Obviously, the fund was underweight. The oil sector and more cyclical names. Um, there's an emphasis on, on digital businesses, which has done the fund well over the medium and longer term, but obviously not in this particular period. However, it's worth noting that the revenue return actually increased by 80% in this six-month period. Uh, versus the comparable preceding period, and the dividends and the capital repayments have been uh, increased as well, partially utilising revenue reserves. Okay, so let's move on from that to Shire's income, ticker SHRS, which is also in the UK equity income sector, but has a slightly different strategy. That's right. And it's worth noting that the period that they've reported for here is exactly the same as the BMO UK high income period. So it's the interim results for Shire's income for the six months to the end of September, in which time they outperformed. Actually, the NAV total return was up 12.3%. That compared a rise of 8% for the benchmark. And in share price terms, nearly as good, actually. Share price total return up 11.7%. The discount just widened out a fraction. But, you know, to your point, uh, Shire's Income has an equity portfolio, which was up 12% in this time, and a preference share portfolio, and that was up 7.9%. That was positive for revenue per share. That came in at 7 spot 21p. That was up 17% on the preceding comparable period. Uh, and the board intends a full-year dividend of at least... 13.8p for the financial year, um, and that would represent a, a rise on the preceding year, which is up 13.2. But um, yeah, some interesting comments. I mean, this is part of the Aberdeen stable, it's probably worth saying. Ian Pyle and Charles Luke or Charlie Luke are responsible for this one, uh, and clearly they performed well. It, interesting comments as well from the chairman just made the point about how the uh, very positive outlook, particularly given the continued potential for income growth. So we'll move on now to overseas, and we're going to talk about BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust, ticker BRFI, who've produced some figures for the year to 30th September. That's right. Annual results and a strong period for BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust. Their NAV total return in sterling terms was up 46.7%, and that compared with a return of 22.1% for their benchmark. The share price total return came in at just short of 37%, and that just reflected the fact that discount widened uh, from about 5% to 11% in that particular period. But on a, a geographic basis, the top performers included Hungary, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Vietnam. And also there was some talk about the outlook. Um, Sam Vecht and Emily Fletcher are responsible for this one, and uh, as always, make a very good case for frontier markets that the fact that uh, it covers off, or certainly their definition of frontier markets, covers off 30% of the world's population, 12% of the GDP, 5% of net profits, but only 1% of world indices. I think they describe it as an oft-ignored asset class. But they are optimistic on the medium-term outlook for frontier markets. Uh, I made the point that actually 
in terms of the reopening thesis and associated earnings recovery, they still had some way to go. Yes, it's not been a great year for emerging markets overall, but uh, Frontiers Investment Trust has uh, obviously put in a good performance during that period. Let's move on and talk about Fidelity China Special Situations, ticker FCSS, which we know has been, if you like, in the centre of the storm as far as the uh, goings-on in the Chinese market this year. But how, in fact, over the whole period that they're reporting on, did they fare? Well, it's been a tough period, clearly. In that six months to the end of September, the NAV total return was down just short of 17%. That compared with a fall of 14.4% for the benchmark. In share price terms, uh, it was even worse, actually nearly down 24% as the discount widened from about 1% to 9%. Underperformance was partially attributed to uh, the exposure to the communication services sector, And some interesting comments from Dale Nichols, who's been responsible for this one since 2014, actually now, so a few years, that the recent regulatory action was viewed as a drive to, as they put it, foster sustainable growth, boost social equality and ensure a balanced economic model. And in fact, the negative market sentiment is viewed as a buying opportunity. Uh, And I noticed that at the end of October, this particular investment trust had net gearing of about 20%. Right. And so I think it's worth making the point that the share price today is still materially higher than it was before the pandemic struck back in the first couple of months of 2020. And really, the Chinese market performed so well last year uh, that there was bound to be some sort of reaction in due course. But I think the scale of it and the depth of it has been a disappointment to a lot of shareholders. What does it trade on now? I mean, the discount, you've had to pay a premium last year towards the end of last year, but now you can buy it on a discount as so often with these things. How does that compare with the other big trusts in this sector? So there are four investment trusts focused on China. They're all on discounts now. That wasn't certainly the case uh, at the start of the year. Fidelity China Special Sits is on a 5% discount. That's in line with the Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust. The JP Morgan China Growth and Income Fund, that's on a 3% discount. But actually Aberdeen China, which we've talked about a number of times, that used to be the Aberdeen Emerging Markets Fund, uh, that's on a 16% discount, though it's only recently converted uh, its mandate. But no, you make a good point in terms of the performance. I mean, if you look over a three-year period, three-year NAV total return, then Fidelity China's up 51% in that time. And that's despite the sell-off that we've seen this year. The Bailey Gifford Fund, it's not a direct comparison because, again, Bailey Gifford uh, only got that fund relatively recently. But the JP Morgan China Growth and Income Fund, they're up 102% over a three-year period in NAV total return terms. So uh, all one could say is it's definitely a lot cheaper than it was. And whether that makes it more attractive? Well, it's more attractive, but has the actual return outlook improved? Is it uh, now a bargain level? I've seen some brokers out there trying to uh, push that particular argument. We're interested to see whether that uh, that actually prevails uh, next year. So while we're on the subject of overseas trusts, let's uh, catch up with the results of Keystone Positive Change Trust, which, uh, again, was one we could have mentioned last Friday had we not completed the podcast on Thursday afternoon. So a quick update on that one, uh, Simon, please. So these were annual results for the year to the end of September. Bailey Gifford took over the management of this one on February 2021. Uh, at which stage the portfolio was transitioned to Bailey Gifford's positive change portfolio of global companies. So in terms of the numbers, well, the NAV total return in that financial year, they were up 17.3% NAV total return, and that compared with a rise of 24.5% of the comparative index. And that was a composite of the, the previous index, the FTSE All Share to the 10th of February, 
and then the MSCI All Country World. In share price terms, though, it was a pretty uh, impressive return. It was up 40.9% in that period, whereas the discount narrowed from 17% to just 1%. So clearly an awful lot of going on in terms of uh, the investment portfolio as it was repositioned. But they've also made investments in three private companies, Norfolk, Spiber, I think you pronounce that, and Cy Quantum. And they also took the gearing down as well. That declined over the year from about 10% to about 5%. But it's worth mentioning again that the new investment objective and policy means that returns are essentially coming from capital growth. So this used to be uh, in the UK equity income sector. And so, you know, the dividend will become a very much a, a secondary issue. And in fact, in the in the short term, the boards utilise reserves just to maintain that dividend level at 11.2p. But uh, going forward, the dividend policy will be amended for 2022, such that no interim dividends will be paid and any annual dividend will be paid only to the extent that it's needed for the fund to maintain its investment trust status. Uh, Let's move on. We mentioned Chrysalis Investments already, but we can uh, catch up on their trading update, ticker CHRY, as I've already mentioned. This is them uh, announcing that NAV that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's right. So this was basically covering off the period, um, so Q3, the three-month period to the end of September. Uh, I mean, basically, the NAV was up 7.7%. And we got some colour what's going on in terms of the underlying portfolio. Um, They've seen very strong underlying revenue growth from some of their key holdings, such as Starling, uh, which represented about 15-16% of the portfolio at the 24th of November. Klarna Holdings, that's a 28% or is worth 28% of the investment portfolio. That's performing well. Uh, and uh, Wise, that's 5% of the portfolio. That saw its share price up 35% following the IPO. So kind of one blot on the copybook uh, was THG. That's another listed company uh, which saw its share price decline in the period, but that represented 3% in that time. But they certainly seem pretty positive about some of the potential for the underlying holdings. They particularly singled out Klarna, which is a big holding for them, clearly, and uh, made the point that the ramifications of the Klarna-Stripe relationship could prove material to the way that investors consider Klarna's valuation. So Nick Williamson and Richard Watts of uh, Jupiter Asset Management uh, are still clearly quite positive about prospects. It's worth noting as well that the sale of Embark, which will generate not too far off £400 million for them, uh, has also been announced as well. And one of the other interesting developments of this announcement was with regard to the performance fee. So um, it is likely that there will be a performance fee generated when they uh, announce their financial results, which I think is a period to the end of September. But 54% of that performance fee will actually be paid through the issue of shares, and that will be done at an issue price of 267p, which represented a 6% premium to the NAV, and as discussed, is actually some way north of the, the, the current share price. But the idea here is that those shares that will be issued as part of that performance fee will go to the investment team uh, and other people in Jupiter Asset Management and basically create a natural alignment. Well, we would hope so. We'd hope there's one there already. But uh, of course, that is uh, part of the way that's been structured. Let's move on and talk about uh, Schroeder UK Public Private, formerly Woodford Patient Capital, ticker SUPP, which has been hauling its way back into slightly better times. Uh, but how have they fared in the latest period? Yes, yeah, so we uh, we got a couple of developments from Trade UK Public Private this week. Basically, the NAV at the end of September was announced at 47 spot 13p. That was up 16% in Q3. And that was primarily a reflection of the IPO of Oxford Nanopore Technologies. 
just up 69%. That's actually the largest holding in the portfolio now. It's worth about 34%, or it was at this particular point. And that's despite the fact uh, that they sold down about 10% of their holding at the IPO stage. Uh, the remainder is subject to an 180-day lockup. So quoted holdings, actually, it's worth noting, are now worth about 51% of the portfolio. But there's quite a lot of portfolio activity coming on. So Tim Creed and Roger Doig of Schroders are responsible for this one. And you get the feeling that there's quite a bit of portfolio activity underway. So obviously, at the start of the year, they were very much focused on bringing down the investment trust gearing level. At the end of this period, they're actually sat with a bit of cash at about £8 million in cash at the end of September. And their revolving credit facility was unutilised. But they're making some new investments as well. But probably the one thing to just keep an eye on is that they've got a holding in a company called Rutherford Health that represented 8% of the portfolio. It certainly did at the end of September. And the managers noted comments in that particular company's interim results that were published in November regarding funding requirements and uncertainty over its continuation as a going concern. So that's just something to keep an eye on there. Yeah, so it, as we said many times before, it's a long way back for this one after the uh, trauma of the Woodford years and its unhappy conclusion. But what sort of progress do you think they're making? I mean, the share price is still loitering just above 30p, which has been most of the year around that level. So actually, I guess this last 12 months has been a bit of a disappointment for them, having begun the sort of climb back the previous year. As I think they made the point before, that they are now much more in control of their own destiny in the sense that the legacy holdings, some of them have been sold and they now have a bit more cash to spend themselves um, but there's still some occasional problems coming out of the uh, old holdings, Rutherford Health being the the latest case in point, I guess. Yeah, look, I think it's fair to say it's taken longer to kind of work through the legacy portfolio than I suspect the investment management team probably appreciated or certainly hoped when they took this one on. I mean, I've got it trading on about a 29% discount or so at the moment. So it is quite a wide discount, far wider than you see in that particular I mean, we put it in the kind of private equity growth capital subsector, so alongside Chrysalis, Shehalian, uh, Schroeder British Opportunities as well. And this, this particular investment trust, Schroeder UK Public Private, is on a far wider discount. So one suspects there is a bit of bad news factored into the story. I mean, clearly Oxford Nanopore Technologies has been a fabulous uh, investment for them. And it'd be interesting to see what they do when that lockup period expires, which will probably be about March next year or so, whether they'll take the opportunity to raise additional liquidity. Certainly, it's a, it's a large part of the portfolio at the moment. So certainly more work to be done on the investment portfolio, but they have clearly made progress this year. If you look at the NAV, um, I mean, it's up you know, 22% over the last six months, up 12% uh, on the last 12 months. So that at least is moving in the right direction. And they'd also made a second announcement this week about some of that investment activity that you mentioned. What was that about? Yes, that's right. So another portfolio holding in a company called Cedars, they've announced an agreement to be acquired by an outfit called Republic for $100 million in a mixture of shares, cash and carried interest. That's expected to complete in the early part of next year. And Schroeder UK Public Private has agreed to sell its stake to an investment management firm for £12 million in cash. Now, again, that's expected to complete in the early part of next year in advance of the Republic acquisition. The valuation of Cedars was actually increased by about 30% in that Q3 update. So there's already the kind of good news was, was factored in. But again, it's another liquidity event for one of the, the old holdings in the portfolio. So presumably the logic behind that is that they don't want to wait for the whole acquisition process to, to work its way through. They want to get their hands on the cash straight away. Is that the logic for selling the stake before this acquisition goes through? One would assume so. Yeah, I've got no great insight into that. But, um, you know, I think uh, 
certainly they'd quite like to get their hands on the cash once this makes. Okay, so we'll move on and talk about triple point energy efficiency infrastructure, ticker TEEC, uh, which has had some half-year results. Uh, this is, again, as a relative newcomer to the sector, I think. Tell us uh, about that one, Simon. Yeah, that's right. And just on that, it launched back in October last year, October 2020, when it raised £100 million. So these were half-year results to the end of September. The NAV was down about 3p or so. So it came in at 94.5p. And that was essentially as a result of uh, dividend payments, totaling 3.375p. And actually, they've declared dividends for the third quarter of 2021 uh, and they're targeting an aggregate dividend of 5.5p for the financial year to the 31st of March. But this investment company is still very early days for it, and there's still a lot of deployment to be done. So at the end of September, the actual investment portfolio itself was valued at uh, £28.5 million. And it had cash of just short of £66 billion at that stage. However, there is a near-term pipeline valued at uh, not too far off £290 billion, of which £48 million they've signed heads of terms on. So that deployment is now running through. And in fact, the fund is looking to put in place a debt facility to allow for additional investments. And the idea is, certainly over the medium term, the gearing target will be up to 40% of gross asset value. Is it a little unusual to have still have so much cash after a whole year since IPO? Would some people be disappointed by that, or is it just a question of it takes time to get these things to work their way through? I mean, if you're paying dividend out of the cash you've raised, it's slightly unusual, isn't it? So they did have some income in the period, though um, obviously uh, the majority of the dividend came from capital. I mean, there were some comments in the investment manager's report that you know there were some sectors that were not as good or as promising as they thought in terms of potential uh, investment prospects. And I think they, they singled out housing association energy efficiency projects as an example of that. But look, you've got to get it right when you deploy your capital. And I, I suspect most uh, investors would appreciate that uh, they're taking time and care and consideration over getting those, especially that initial portfolio set up as high a standard as they possibly can. Well, finally, then we're going to move on to talk about property trust. Before I do that, though, I should just mention that this week uh, for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, we have an in-depth profile of Hickel Infrastructure one of the very first pioneers in the infrastructure space in the investment trust world. We've been going for well over a decade now. We've got them profiled. And then there's also a comment on more of the moneymakers portfolios, the income portfolio and others that I monitor for that purpose. And a couple of investment trust mentions that I think look interesting in the current market. Let's move on now and talk about property trusts. Finally, we've got three to report on here. We've got Custodian REIT, first of all, ticker C-R-E-I. They've produced some interim results also for this same period, 30th September. What do they have to say, uh, Simon? Yeah, a good set of results. So the NAV total return was up 11.7%. The property portfolio was valued at $565 billion at the end of September. And some of that came from uh, asset management or the uplift. But actually, some of it was a general uh, valuation increases. So we've talked about this one in uh, the month or two gone by because they uh, acquired Drum Income Plus REIT, uh, and that all went through during the period. But uh, overall, it seems to be moving in the right direction. 95% of the rent collected in related to the half year, uh, and that's adjusted for contractual uh, deferrals. And in terms of the EPRA earnings per share, that increased from 2.6p to 3p. And that actually was a result of the reduction in a doubtful debt provision. So aggregate dividends of 2.5p per share were declared in respect to the period. And in fact, they're targeting dividends per share of no less than 5.25p for the year ending 31st of March 2022. And in fact, 5.5p 
for the year ending 31st of March 2023. Let's move on then. We can talk about residential secure income, ticker RESI or RESI. They've had some annual results for the same period. That's right. And again, a decent set of numbers. So EPRA NTA total return was up 7.5%, just like behind what they were targeting, actually. They were targeting 8%. But the investment property valuation, that was up 2.5% to £351 million. And that was a reflection of rental growth and the shared ownership portfolio breaching full occupancy. So again, quite a bit of portfolio activity going on in this time. Um, what are some of the key things to notice that retirement voids were reduced to 7% in the second half of the year. And that was actually in line with the pre-COVID-19 average. And as at the end of September, the loan to value ratio came in at uh, 46%. But 99% of the rent collection for the year came in. And in fact, the EPRA adjusted earnings per share came in at 4.2p. That compares with 2.9p for the previous financial year. And in fact, they've paid 5p per share dividend as targeted. And that was fully covered by recurring income from the final quarter of the year. And that was ahead of schedule. So it wasn't necessarily covered from uh, earnings in the full year. But just as that revenue picked up in towards the end of the year, then on a run annual run rate, it was covered. Okay, so this is uh, one of the trusts because it's in social housing. That's its main investment activity, but it also involved in uh, shared ownership portfolio, as you said. Uh, and this one, I mean, the shares have been uh, pretty weak, actually. They've gone from a premium to a discount. And uh, some people think that that's because of a bit of kind of contagion from the goings on at Civitas, which we've talked about a lot. But actually, they have a different business model, I think. So what's been happening to the rating of this one? Yeah, I've got it at about a 3% discount or so at the moment. Um, I mean, that compares to an average of 8% over the previous 12 months. But you're right, in terms of the rating, it has bounced around a little bit. It's been as wide as an 18% discount. It's also been up to a premium as well, probably about 6% at one stage. So uh, 3% or so at the moment. Okay, and then finally, we can talk about, I guess, what one can always say is one of the veterans of the investment trust sector, and that is the TR Property Investment Trust, ticker TRY. This is a trust that uh, invests mainly in the shares of other property companies. It's produced uh, some interim results for the six months to the 30th of September. That's right, in which time the NAV total return was up 15.6%. That compared to a rise of 11% for the investment trust benchmark. In share price terms, it was even stronger, actually up 22.1% as the discount narrowed from 6% to 1%. Marcus Fairmudge, the long-standing uh, manager of this one, always has some very interesting things to say about the property sector and a lot of colour in terms of what uh, they've been up to. I mean, certainly in this six-month period, the top performers included Sirius Real Estate, Argon, Industrials REIT, VIB, Vermotion and Warehouses Depot. Apologies for the terrible pronunciation. It's also worth noting, actually, they do have uh, an investment in a physical Uh, property and that was also uh, positive during that period as well. So the revenue earnings per share came in at 10 spot 31p that was up 35% on the previous equivalent period and they declared an interim dividend of 5.3p and that was up just under 2% for the equivalent six-month period last year. And the board is apparently confident that revenue will return to pre-pandemic levels over the next 18 months. Uh, whereas the manager continues to focus on sustainable income and has further tilted the portfolio towards index-linked income. So maybe there's a reflection there on his views on inflation. Indeed there are. And of course, that uh, is one of the explanations for the rather different ratings we see across the property sector is that uh, a number of uh, trusts, particularly some of the specialist trusts, 
do have a, a, a relatively high degree of inflation linking in their rental income, which is seen as a positive if you believe that inflation is coming. Uh, and those three we just mentioned, we quickly usually round up property trusts by just having a quick look at their discounts. We've still got some of the big boys, the big generalist commercial property trusts still trading on reasonably significant discounts. But uh, these three are all trading rather better than that, I think. Yeah, that's right. So TR Property, just to cover that one off, that's trading on around NEV at the moment. Actually, it's averaged a 4% uh, discount over the previous 12 months. It's got a yield just short of 3%. In terms of residential secure income, well, I think we talked about that one, a 3% discount at the moment. It's got a yield on a historic basis of 3.2%. Uh, custodian reaps just to finish off on a 7% discount, yielding 4.4% at the moment. Splendid. Good. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Well, I see we've got through quite a lot and we've covered our, quite a lot of time in doing so, but uh, it's always fun to talk to you, Simon. And uh, let's hope that uh, next week there's some better news on the virus front. Maybe the markets will uh, will prove resilient again, but uh, equally we could be in for another choppy period. So we'll have to wait and see how that pans out and what effect that has on fundraising and all the other issues that we've been talking about today. So thank you, Simon. Look forward to speaking next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.